0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. And I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. We have updates
1: tonight on the DOJ's investigation into Donald Trump. And there's new ludicrous things that the congresswoman from Georgia is saying about January 6th and how much worse it would have been if she'd been in charge. Somehow she's proud of that. Mm. But it's deeper than just hateful comments. That congresswoman is on the verge of being placed on important committees and having real power.
0: Plus, shocking developments tonight, almost seven months after the horrific... Tragic Uvalde school shooting. We're learning tonight the sheriff's department actually had no active shooter policy when 19 children and two of their teachers were shot to death in their classrooms. How could they protect these kids if there was never a plan? Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. Let's bring in CNN's John Berman. We also have with us
1: senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Gentlemen, great to have you all. So let's start with the updates, um, Ellie, in what's going on with now the special counsel's investigation into all things Donald Trump. Um, They want to interview Brad Raffensperger, okay, Secretary of State in Georgia. That makes sense. He's a pivotal player. Why hasn't the DOJ interviewed him? It's been almost two years.
2: Can I answer your question with just the word amen? I mean, I ask the same question. Why has it taken so long? And look, this is a failure. It's not going to doom the case, but it's an unforced error by prosecutors. Let me explain why. Laura knows this. As a prosecutor, you guard your witnesses jealously. If you get wind that you have someone who you think is an important witness and someone else is poking around, another agency, another prosecutor's office, you shut them down and you keep your witness away. Now, why? Why? Is it it because of greed? No. It's because you don't want your witnesses exposed. So let's look at Brad Raffensperger. We know he's testified in front of the January 6th committee. There's a book on him, literally. There's a transcript full of his testimony. And what's going to happen if he becomes a DOJ witness? The defense lawyers are going to get all that material. They're entitled to it. And they're going to pick him apart. Oh, you said it a little differently this time than that time. Oh, let's follow up on this. And so the more of a record there is on your witness, the more vulnerable he is. And so DOJ... They're talking to Brad Raffensperger now, almost two years out. Great, but they're too late. And it's really, frankly, embarrassing that they were beaten to the punch by a congressional committee, of all things.
0: It gives me pause as well on that point, because you think about the idea. There's also, he's written a book about it. I mean, he's written it. So anything that's maybe different from that, et cetera. But also, we're talking about a special counsel having now been appointed. And so I have to wonder... What were the other prosecutors doing up until this point in time? I mean, the idea of, and, and maybe, you know, we're not privy to everything. I will give the benefit of the doubt in many respects. However, why now? Why is, are we just getting around to it a few days before this committee is going to be goodnighted?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And by the way, this is not a one-off. Cassidy Hutchinson, right? That's right. Remember when she testified to I me, mean, she blew the roof off. And it turned out, the reporting from the New York Times at the time was, DOJ was totally caught by but surprise. Why, Why? I- because they're moving too slow. Because they spent a year and change, DOJ, look, they had to do these 800, 900 prosecutions of the people who stormed the Capitol, no doubt. The problem was during that time, they focused exclusively on those people and not on the key witnesses. Now, they're getting there now. They've been much more aggressive the last four to six months, Mm -hmm. which is good, but there's a cost for being slow.
0: But to be fair on this point, you know the committee was not forthcoming always with I- information <laughs> right i mean you're rolling your eyes but they but they also were having to fight a little bit about who would give what information when but you're you know the committee their role is not prosecutorial their role is to have oversight to try to correct some shortcomings of the law etc do you see the idea of the committee moving quickly and moving slowly—we're not—you don't have a report still. Uh,
3: I, the Brad Raffensperger thing—you didn't need the committee. Yeah. You know, the only people who knew about that phone call was everybody, <laughs> like the world, planet Earth knew about that phone call. So either DOJ looked at it and decided there was nothing there. Or they were just slow walking it for two years, which is hard to understand. The flip side of this, I will say, there's two things, other things about this which jump out to me. Number one, the Raffensperger call deals with illegality involved, possible illegality involving one person and one person only. This and this is Donald Trump. I mean, you talk to Raffensperger if you're investigating Donald Trump exclusively to see if he broke the law. The other thing is, they did talk to the White House lawyers last week, mm-hmm. right? That's huge. So as weird as this is, as weird and late as this all seems. The fact that they broke down that wall and were talking to White House lawyers and broke through that Mm -hmm. privilege claim, that's a big deal.
1: Um, Charlie, I want to bring you in and talk about something that Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said this weekend. Um, She's quite, I mean, she said it quite proudly that if it had been up to her, if she and Steve Bannon had planned January 6th, she said it would have been worse and they all would have been armed. First of all, Well, she said they let me let me give you the quote, not to mention it would have been armed. Um, It was armed, first of all. And it would have been worse. More than 140 police officers would have been badly injured. She's proud of this. And the point of this is not that she says ludicrous things because we have all, I guess, become accustomed to her saying ludicrous things. The point is she's about to have real power.
4: Well, yeah, I guess. No one should be particularly surprised by this comment, given she's the one who gave us the Jewish space laser comment. Uh, she was a QAnon person who actually doubted that 9-11 happened. Uh, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised that uh, she made these comments about uh, uh, January 6th. Uh, you know, she's obviously very reckless and incendiary in her statements. This is nothing new. That's not changed. Like I've been saying since the day she was first nominated. Uh, to to the Congress down in Georgia, that uh, she should have been denied uh, admission into the Republican conference. But she's going to be on and, like and and she, the, she wants to be on oversight,
1: and Charlie. Like she's a she be, as she yeah. will be. Look, yeah, she, she they, they never, will be. They, they should never.
4: They should have never. They should never put her on a committee. Uh, uh, they were right to strip her. It's it's too bad that it took the Democrats to, to to kick her off the committees. They should not readmit her to any committees ever. She should be ostracized. Uh, that's how you deal with people. You marginalize some of these radical or extreme elements rather than normalize. Them. they brought her into the tent while at the same time marginalizing. People say like, oh, like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are treated like persona non grata. But uh, Green has been brought in. Here's this one more reason why they should be marginalized, mar- mar- marginalizing Marjorie Taylor Green. This is just the latest example. It's a horrible comment that she said. Now, she says it's facetious or sarcastic. Well, I, I saw that the clip. It didn't seem that sarcastic to me. I think she yeah. kind of meant it, to be honest with you. And the yeah, fact it's that not she funny. would invoke Steve Aniston, I mean, it's, it's,
0: it's horrible. Well, let me, and let said, me ask, excuse me, Charlie, let me ask you. I mean, I, and I think we I think we all agree. The idea I think calling it sarcasm is a cop out. Of course, I don't think it was sarcastic. I think that she intended to make the statement she did. But what do you say, Charlie, to the retort that, look, hold on, you want to marginalize her. But after she's done all these things, save for what happened over the weekend, she was reelected in her district. The people of her district wanted her there. Does that change the calculus in terms of how a potential speaker like McCarthy or otherwise could actually operate, knowing that they want her here? She's not um, ending her term. She has been reinvigorated by a re-election. Well, the way
4: Kevin McCarthy dealt effectively with Steve King, who made racially insensitive or incendiary comments, marginalized him. They threw him off the Ag Committee, uh, basically weakened him badly. It allowed a primary opponent to come in and take him out in the primary. They couldn't beat Steve King in in the general election, but they beat him in a primary by weakening him. That's how you do that. You marginalize her, then you go recruit a primary opponent, and you take her out in the primary. That's the way you do this. It's an overwhelming Republican district. I doubt the Democrats could ever beat her in that seat. It's among the most Republican districts in the Mm -hmm. country. So that's how you do it. You have to marginalize her, make it harder for her to raise money by bringing her into the tent. They've almost normalized her, and she's been able to monetize her notoriety, and she's raised piles of money. But that's part of the problem. They they, they brought her in, and she's almost been legitimized in many ways. And sadly, in this crazy political environment we live in, some of the more radical elements can make a lot of money on crazy stuff.
1: Well, and I think that, I mean, to our point, that I think it's about to get worse, John Berman. Listen to what she said on Bannon's War Room Mm -hmm. uh, last month about what we should all prepare for.
5: I'm going to be on the Oversight Committee, and we're going to do investigations into that little laptop, Hunter Biden's. So you guys can buckle up, get ready, and we're going for a ride, because that's happening in January.
0: Just wait. look at at the date that was, November 18th. That's around the time, I think a few days after, Kevin McCarthy had his first vote to become the, at least thought to be, maybe the speaker. Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that she is saying— I'm gonna be on the oversight committee. i'm I'm wondering why she has that indication and to be that confident to have the next statement she's made. Look,
3: she's a feature, not a bug of a big part of where the energy is uh, in the Republican party. now not not all of it, but a big part of the party. She represents she just does this event she said this this stuff at about nine uh, about January six was like a New York Republican. Oh, yeah. Event. yeah, she's brought in as a celebrity speaker around the country right now at different Republican events in the northeastern state of New York. Yeah, and she gets cheers when she says, I'm going to tell
1: you, if I had organized it, we would have won. Won what on January 6th? Won a totalitarian government? I mean, won, what what was winning?
3: No, I think that's a great point. Listen to exactly what she says there and how she says it. And it's interesting, the saying she was sarcastic and just joking, I I agree with you. you. You listened to what she was saying there. It didn't sound like a joke. However, that method is a frequent method used by extremists. Uh, Nick Fuentes, by the way, often jokes mm-hmm. uh, about uh, you know, awful things he's saying about Jews. He's saying he's just joking or just pressing. It's what you do, so you have this, I think part of it's legal, uh, but plausible, lively. Oh, I was just joking. So it's really interesting to watch her do this playbook.
0: Well, wow, the cover is not convincing. I mean, the idea is almost like someone saying to you, hey, no offense, but mm-hmm. whatever follows next, I'm offended. It's offensive. I'm offended. It's going to have a problem. Look, everyone, we have some news tonight on this school shooting in Uvalde. And it's absolutely, I mean, Alison, it's shocking. It's shocking to think about it. I mean, an independent review finds that there were no active shooter policies in place on the day a gunman killed 19 little children and two beloved teachers. CNN's report is next. A new report tonight revealing the Uvalde County Sheriff's Office didn't actually have an active shooter policy at the time of that massacre that took the lives of 19 children and two adults.
1: This is very hard to believe because school shootings have become tragically a part of our regular lives. Our school kids never asked for this, but why on earth wouldn't administrators be prepared for it at this point? CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Procupis has been covering this story since the second it happened and the failed response to this shooting. Shimon, how on earth in this day and age wouldn't you have a, an active shooter policy?
6: Right. It's a great question, right? When you think about the fact that, as you say, this is something that kids kids practice, something that kids are aware of, something that kids have to go through. And so today we learned not only was there no active shooter policy with the Uvalde County Sheriff, but actually the sheriff himself has not gone through active shooter training. It's something that's not required by by law, but it's certainly something that you would think leading law enforcement officials would go through so they can make the right decisions when the time comes. We are learning all of this because of this report that was commissioned by the Uvalde County officials. They wanted to look at the practices, not at what went wrong that day. This is not a report looking at where the failures were and who screwed up back on May 24th. It was about the practices and the policies of the Evaldi County Sheriff. And so that's where this report uh, comes from. That's how we learned this information. Today we spoke to uh, the man who, commit, who did this report, the expert, the police expert. Take a listen
7: to what he said. There was no active shooter policy. There were only definitions. It did define what active shooters were. And there were... Uh, portions that dealt with critical incidences and how officers would respond to that, but there was no active shooter policy.
6: And so certainly this took a lot of people by surprise. It took family members by the surprise. The fact that there was no policy, the deputies, for the most part, have gone through the training. There's several that haven't, but obviously having this policy was something they needed to do. And Based on the information we've been able to gather, they have made some changes and they now have this policy.
0: Well, Shimon, speaking of the families, I know you've been intimately involved since the beginning here. I cannot imagine the families hearing that at this point. I mean, we're talking about this took place months and months ago. How are we just now hearing about this? What is the family's reaction to the fact that there was no active shooter policy?
6: It's right. And time and time again, it takes months and it takes us chasing people around or us forcing people ultimately, putting their walls up, you know, putting their backs up against the wall to get this information. You know, this came as a result of this report. And certainly when family members heard this, they were pretty shocked. They were expecting more information because they want to know about the failures that day. But to hear that there was no policy in place, it certainly took them by surprise and they were upset. The problem is they don't trust what's going on in the community. They don't trust what officials are telling them. Take a listen to to one man uh, who he lost his daughter on that day. We talked to him afterwards. Uh, Take a listen to what he said.
7: I don't trust anybody at this point. I know, I mean, I don't. I mean, uh, we haven't got any information from any of them. Our information has been coming from you guys.
6: And that's really, he's right there. I mean, most of the information has been coming from reporters. It's not only me, there are other reporters. Uh, you know, we are doing a lot of reporting there because so many of the officials have refused to answer the questions. For these family members, they're going to continue to fight. They're going to continue to demand answers. They still need to have certain questions answered because there are still so many things that we don't know about that day.
0: Shimon, stay with us. John Berman and Ellie Honig are back. And CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller joins the conversation. John, I, this is, the horror of it is unbelievable. It, it never gets easier to hear about this. And this, we're not even the family members of those who lost their lives. And it's just so tragic. What is your reaction to the fact that there is no active shooter policy, just essentially a handbook with definitions? Because I, I wonder, isn't the policy... Save lives?
8: I think the more important thing is if there's active shooter training. If there's active shooter training, this is what you, the cop, is supposed to do when you get there. Um, that is more important than the policy. On the other hand, the policy affects those up the chain from that police officer, mm. which is what should the command and control be? Who should be in charge? And Shimon's reporting in this story has shown that the sheriff, and ask any sheriff in the country, they'll tell you they're the highest you know, law enforcement official in the county, was at the inactive crime scene where the earlier shooting had been, not at the school scene, had the information as to the identity of the shooter and other information, which he did not bring into the mix at the scene, nor did he go to the active shooter scene um, and take command of it. So in the incident command system, which is the Bible for incident control, right? Who's the incident commander? It's you. Everybody knows that. Then when you take over, everybody knows that you have assumed command. In Uvalde, everybody slash nobody was in charge. Nobody actually knew who was running it. There was an assumption that the school police chief who had a total, you know, police department of like six officers was in charge, which would have been unreasonable and that there were larger agencies there with more people. So as we peel back the layers, we see more and more dysfunction in the kind of place that just probably believed it will never happen here. Which is the kind of place it keeps happening? Well,
0: let me I, just before you go on that point, though, you're talking about policy versus training, and I think people have to have understanding. the policy is the for the higher ups or the instructions of how to carry out the policies of the training. What is the distinction? And do In we terms know of there was no done? training? Well, we'll I ask mean, Shimon.
8: Shimon, Shimon just told us that the deputies went through some kind of active shooter training. The state of Texas has an active shooter policy. Right. The state of Texas has active shooter training standards. Uh, but I think the policy piece is where we keep getting stuck because when everybody got there, the school police, the town police, the county sheriff, the detective uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety, why wasn't there a protocol where everybody knows this is how we know who's in command? Yeah. And that is probably what a clear policy would have brought.
1: Um, John, you and I and Shimon and all of us have covered more of these school shootings than we could ever count. We
3: were on the same plane down to Uvalde the day it happened. That's right. I forgot that.
1: I've blocked some of this out because it was all, I mean, that was a particular, look, they're all awful. But the point is Shimon's been there on and off since that day that we were on that plane because of the incompetence and corruption here that I've never seen anything like. Well,
3: that's exactly the point I wanted to bring up. I think the most appalling words we heard from Shimon right there were, today we learned. This is seven months in. There should be no today we learned about what happened in Uvalde. From the very beginning, there have been shifty responses. I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. There has been the most opaque response to this that you can possibly imagine. And, you know, as reporters obviously we don't like that, but what about the families? They've just been if not deceived, they've been stiff armed for seven months. And to learn seven months in that that sheriff, you know, didn't have either a policy or, 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 or the training or didn't, certainly didn't know what he was doing. We know he didn't know what he was doing there that day because we saw that happen. But the fact that this, these facts are just coming out now, it really, there's something going on there beyond the incompetence at this point. It's not just incompetence, mm-hmm. it does feel like there are things that are being hidden or trying to be withheld. From oh,
1: life. for sure. I mean, and Shimon, all of Shimon's reporting are exhibit A of that. I mean, he has, as he said,
0: chased, had to chase people around to ask them simple questions that the families want to know. This is why I think it's important, too. And I think we've talked about this in the past, um, Ellie, and the idea of, for a long time, we were focusing on the one person, right? Sheriff Ardondo, the, and the idea of thinking about this. The and we, The chief, and the chief, excuse me, thank you, and the idea was there had to be more people who were involved or more people who, had, who would have their uh, ability to change something or be active. And I wonder, oftentimes in the cruelty of a tragedy like this, you're left wondering what recourse a family could have. You're left wondering selfishly as parents, as, as human beings, you want this never to happen anywhere else and this becomes a blueprint and the law can become a vehicle to ensure a deterrence. Is there a recourse? Yeah, I'm, I mean...
2: There is almost certainly not going to be criminal charges here against these cops, unless they lied to investigators. That's where you could get into it. There could be well, could be civil suits, but there's always this layer of immunity that protects police officers in a lot of what they do. I think there's a couple really important bigger picture points here. One, people think of the police, the cops, as some sort of monolith. But as John was just saying, there are layers upon layers. I mean, it, Cops are a bureaucratic nightmare. There's your sheriff, there's your local cops, there's your state police, there's your feds, FBI, DEA. I mean, and the problem is, and I experienced this firsthand, Everyone's has different policies, different training. And then when they all converge on a crime scene like this, who's in charge? Whose policies are, are we following? The other thing that, that really strikes me about this story is, I'll just say candidly, there is a sense of arrogance and entitlement that goes with Law enforcement goes with being a prosecutor and a cop. You are all powerful. And you know what? You get used to responding to media requests with no comment. We don't comment. We don't talk about that. It's secret. It's confidential. It's security and all that. But there comes a time, and that's been changing over time, but in a situation like this, to be so slow and to be so (laughs) not forthcoming, as John said, just makes it so much worse. So cops have to do, do better, and they have to be more transparent, and sometimes you just have to own up. And even if it hurts in the beginning, and be honest, because you only make it worse for yourself, but more importantly, for the, for the poor family. I mean, just,
8: yeah, I- just to tag on to that, though, I mean, we're looking at consequences. Families will sue. This reparations will take a long time. But the school police chief was fired. The town police chief uh, retired in lieu of what was coming, which was probably going to be fired. Um, the county sheriff is interesting because that's a political office. He runs for election. So this is a problem that will address itself, which is when the election time comes up, people will say uh, whether or not he performed to their satisfaction or not. And the people will speak on that um, more definitively than the government might.
1: Shimon, you're the expert, obviously, on all things Uvalde. Do you have a sense of why there's been so much stonewalling and why you've had to chase people around for months?
6: So I think one of the things that I have found, and certainly our team here in doing all of this reporting and gathering so much of the information is that there was a very early on indications that it was just best to point fingers at one person and that was the school police chief uh, uh, Arredondo and it was just easier to say you know what he was in charge and the head of the DPS sort of you know made that he came out and said he was in charge of the scene but as we start looking at more and more information it's becoming more and more clear that there were more people more senior level people who were in charge, and there are some like the mayor of Vivaldi who think there's a cover up here because people are embarrassed. Some of the leaders of people of the Department of Public Safety, this prestigious law enforcement agency, the top law enforcement agency here in Texas that had ninety one. Of their deputies and officers on scene, and the fact that they couldn't get control of the situation. And so they were quick to put all the blame on this school police chief, and now they are embarrassed. Uh, there are some who feel it's that. Some feel that pe- officers and leading law enforcement officials who don't want to accept the blame. It's just easier to point fingers at others for the mistakes that happened that day. And so no one wants to take ownership, no one wants to stand up and say, I screwed up. You know, we screw up. Here is where we screwed up. And the overarching thing in all of this, and most interesting, is the Uvalde district attorney. Uh, we tried to ask her questions today. She just would look at us and walk away. She wouldn't say anything. Family members are frustrated by her. I have never seen a case where so many victims have been frustrated by the district attorney. I mean, I have yet to find one family member who is satisfied with the job that she is doing. And more on that is going to come. But that's another problem in this entire investigation. She is preventing officials from releasing any information. She has threatened them. She has said that she's going to potentially file charges against them if if they were to release information. The mayor is having to sue her to get information. So you do, you really need to wonder what exactly is going on here. I don't know. You know, it's going to take several more months, probably, before officials, someone comes before a podium and finally tells the community and these families exactly what went wrong here.
1: Well, Shimon, I mean, um, you're doing incredible work and people wouldn't know about all of this uh, if you hadn't have stayed there and been so tenacious. Um, Thank you very much for talking about all this and being there tonight for us. All right, coming up, there's more turmoil at Twitter and more backlash against Elon Musk. And now the billionaire is going after Dr. Anthony Fauci, and there's more QAnon tropes. There's a lot to discuss. Next. Billionaire Elon Musk wading deeper into the culture wars this weekend, taking to Twitter to echo QAnon talking points.
0: And even as Twitter relaunches their Twitter blue plans, news of more upheaval in the company. Twitter announcing in an email to employees that they are disbanding their trust and safety Oh, good. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? The move comes after the week after three members of the council actually resigned, calling Musk out and saying the safety and well-being of Twitter's users is on the decline. We're back now with John Berman, also CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher, and Charlie Dent is back with us as well. I mean, it's pretty stunning, first of all, on that point, Sarah, to think about that council being disbanded. A pretty important function you would think they'd have to have.
5: Yes, and Elon Musk says he's going to have his own content moderation council, but where is it? He said that he was going to be making all of these content moderation changes after he appointed a council, basically to replace the existing one. But he's nowhere near doing that. This council was responsible for helping guide Twitter, not making decisions on things like how do you deal with hate speech? How do you deal with things like child pornography? Really serious issues. They were not meant to sway Twitter one way or another, just offer helpful guidance. The fact that he's disbanding it is a little bit of a concerning move. It's oh, an outside council. Sorry. Well, just that the hate speech is right. not, I also mean, yeah. on it markedly. Outside counsel. So these are experts, people in civil rights groups, people who work in advertising, who can help Twitter. Oftentimes, these groups work with other platforms such as Meta and Snapchat. So they're bringing in some of their expertise from social media at large to help Twitter make these policies better.
1: Um, John, here's what uh, Elon Musk tweeted um, this weekend. My pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Um, Mm. So cheeky, but also strange because does he not realize that Dr. Fauci isn't a governor. He didn't make, I mean, basically what he's talking about is that he didn't like the shutdowns of the country. Dr. Fauci didn't make policy. He was a medical expert, a doctor. And so I think that Elon Musk's anger and ire is misdirected. Maybe he doesn't even know that Dr. Fauci didn't shut down different states.
3: Look, I seem to remember that Elon Musk predicted the pandemic was going to be over in April of 2020, didn't he? Mm -hmm. At one point, David Brinkley wrote a book with a great title once. It was Everyone is Entitled to My Opinion, right? (laughs) I think Elon Musk falls into that category of people who believes everyone is entitled to my opinion, that his views are so exalted and important that everyone deserves to hear them. What makes him different than a lot of, I think, these corporate titans who are full of themselves like this is the dude bought a media company, right? He bought a media company where he can amplify... His views, however valid or not valid, informed or ill-informed, they might be. It's reminiscent in, in I, these are very different cases. but Henry Ford bought the Dearborn Independent, bought his local newspaper so that he had an outlet to spout his anti-Semitic views in the 1920s. The, you know, he was a corporate titan who was convinced he was right about something. How do I get the message out there? I'll buy a newspaper. So Elon Musk has now bought this platform. And can do whatever he wants with it, and he's showing the world he is going to do whatever he wants with it.
0: I also think, though, and I'm going to bring you in, Charlie, that he is somebody who's a provocateur in some respects as well. I'm not diminishing any of the comments or, or in any way excusing them. But he is attempting, I believe, to try to get the attention, to try to get it away from the bad press he's gotten, of course, on a lot of different notions of. In fact, there's consequence to the way he's done. You have the former uh, Twitter, former head of trust and safety having to flee his home because of escalating threats, because of things that he's actually said. So there are real consequences as well. But is this something that can be course-corrected by anyone other than Elon Musk, his own prerogative?
4: Well, if he's trying to change the subject and course-correct, this was not the way to do it attacking an 80 some year old man who frankly is a hero within the public health community given his record i had the wonderful opportunity to work with his team during the zika crisis i mean this man is a, is a fauci is a you know has a great reputation and this has been pointed out he did not shut the government down he was asked to deal with it did he make mistakes did the public health team make some mistakes along the way with with shifting guidance of course they did uh, but this is so so misdirected in, in a battle with uh, Fauci. I think Fauci is going to win. But as John and others have pointed out, you know, uh, he has a platform and and Elon Musk is going to discover real fast that he's going to have to engage in content moderation just as any other platform does. A newspaper, you know, they, they choose which letters of the editor to publish and not to publish. They're always uh, they're always moderating content. Musk is going to have to do the same thing, whether he likes it or not. Take it on Fauci is a loser for him. It'd be a loser for Republicans if they go after him, you know, in the hearings uh, coming up in 2023.
0: Sarah, real quick, from your perspective, is there a way that he can be
5: accountable? I mean, who, who does he answer to now at Twitter? the users. And if the users are liking it, he's going to double down. And the challenge here is that the engagement with Twitter has actually gone up. Because it's one of those things where even though Elon Musk uses the platform, to John's point, to spew his beliefs, people can't get enough of watching the train crash. when you say
1: the engagement has gone up, more people have have, um,
5: become Twitter members? More users. Users. (laughs) They're They're called users now. (laughs) More users, (laughs) more engagement with tweets. (laughs) I think that part of this new world is that everyone feels like they can engage in it more, whether or not you're on one side or the other. Now, I don't necessarily think that Elon Musk is doing everything right but he's definitely making Twitter a hotter platform than it was before in terms of making it more popular and at the end of the day that's what he cares about this is a business
1: that's fascinating
5: it's a business for
0: hate for
2: eight bucks you get a blue check
5: oh. well listen everyone
0: if you're going through an airport this holiday season you may be scanned by facial recognition technology at the TSA checkpoint but is it creating more problems than it's solving and did you even know that it was happening We'll talk about it. So there's a good chance that many of us who are traveling for the holidays to some of the nation's busiest airports are going to have our faces scanned. Why? Because TSA is expanding its facial recognition pilot program. They say the
1: goal is to match a passenger's face with a photo ID at security checkpoints. Why can't I just match it right here, like where I just look at you and match it with the photo ID like they do? Thank you. You. So anyway, the program is still in the testing phase, but it's already getting a lot of pushback. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Muntean explains.
9: It is the new technology facing travelers as they fly for the holidays. The Transportation Security Administration is now scanning your face at select airport checkpoints, all part of a growing test with passengers as the subjects.
6: I think it's a great idea. I'm absolutely tech forward. We're already using it for our phones consistently. I mean, just about everybody's doing it.
9: The TSA started this small pilot program at the peak of the pandemic, but now the agency's trial is expanding to more than a dozen different airports. The latest additions are among the nation's busiest, Denver, Las Vegas, Dallas-Fort Worth, and Atlanta. TSA Administrator David Pekoski says the goal is evaluating the efficiency of this technology before committing to a nationwide rollout.
10: We're assessing how the technology works and... We're assessing its accuracy. We're assessing its impact on passengers.
9: Here's how this works. Walk up to the machine, put your ID in the reader, and that photo is matched with what the camera sees live.
10: The response has been universally very positive. More effective, speedier, more convenient for passengers are the things that I hear.
2: Quite frankly, it's not doing anything to help the public. The urgent need for greater transparency.
9: Albert Foxconn of the nonprofit Security Technology Oversight Project says this could be the largest federal use of facial data ever.
2: This technology is going to screw it up and people are going to end up being detained by TSA. They're going to be faced with even more uh, surveillance and more invasions of their privacy just because an algorithm
10: gets it wrong. The algorithm actually is so far proven in our assessment to get it right more than the uh, human gets it right.
9: The TSA insists it is committed to passenger privacy, immediately destroying most images and securing data from cyber attacks. Signs in security lines show you when you're about to be a part of this test. You can even opt out and have an agent confirm your ID manually. I
1: prefer a person right now.
9: (laughs) There has to be some kind of parameter
11: in terms of privacy.
1: I don't think TSA has made the case that this is
0: the system that is the best use of resources to protect the American public.
9: More than 20 state and local governments have implemented some sort of restriction on using facial recognition technology. The TSA says that will not impact its pilot program as it looks toward an in-your-face approach to safety.
10: What I hope in the long run is that we're able to embed more and more advanced technology in our screening process.
9: The TSA is also experimenting with taking this a step further, comparing the live image of you at a checkpoint with a photo of you already in a government database, like a passport photo or visa. That test is taking place right now, but only on a limited scale at the Detroit and Atlanta airports. The idea is never having to even show your ID at an airport. Critics point out the biometrics industry is part of a powerful multi-billion dollar tech lobby. And this technology is only now starting to take off. Laura, mm. Allison?
1: Mm-hmm. I heard that, Pete. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, back with us now, John Berman, Ellie Honig, and John Miller. Ellie, I don't know if I'm supposed to love this or hate this. Which, uh, which one is it? <laughs> Should I like it or not?
2: It depends on your world view. It depends to what extent you trust in the surveillance state and technology. Are we
1: all being sort of surveilled at all times? Well, well, That's what I think. It's a great airports. point.
2: I mean, and especially at the airport. I mean, look not to get overly legal about this, but you have privacy rights, of course. But when you go into an airport, you surrender a lot of them. You take your shoes off. They scan you. You have to you know, go in the full body scanner thing where you hold your arms out. And, and I think the argument you'll hear from the government is this is just another example of that. But one thing that I think is really important that sort of saves it from the biggest concerns is you can opt out according to this plan. You can say, no, I want it the old fashioned way. I want someone to look at my license, look at my face and make, make the determination.
0: But I wonder in that instance, are you then considered suspicious, John? I mean, the <laughs> idea, what, what if they get it wrong and it pings for some reason and the recognition software says that you need to be detained for some reason? The different rights come in. If someone says, no. Look at my face only, and here's my ID card. I'm going to raise an eyebrow at that.
8: Well, in the test, you can opt out altogether and just say I'm not passing by this thing. I'm going to do it the way we do it today, which is somebody looks at it and then they look at you. Uh, very low tech, as the TSA guy pointed out. The machine makes less mistakes than the human because the human looks at it. And it's like, well, it's a different haircut. Now <laughs> he has a mustache. The machine's doing, you know, precise measurements. I would say that the questions that we have to tackle here are going to be is. Uh, The pictures. Okay. What's the retention? Is it a year? Is it till your next flight? If you don't fly for five years, does it go away? Uh, The second question is who is it shared with? Do other government agencies have the ability to access this? Do you know what those agencies are? For instance, in the NYPD, we have all kinds of facial recognition tools. We have a crime in progress. We have a good picture. We run that against what? We run it against mugshots of people who are already in our files but not against the state DMV driver's licenses. You already have to be somebody you know to get compared. Those kinds of parameters are what the privacy experts should be focusing on. Because right now, we give our facial recognition to our Apple iPhone. When we uh, opt in, we, we give it to TSA for TSA Clear, because we want to go through the line faster. We give it away to a lot of places. We just need to know, what are the rules here about these pictures before we make a decision? Well, look, I never age. I will.
3: You know, I got a lot of work done, but I don't know how. You know, but you have a picture up in the attic,
12: <laughs> and there was some deal yeah. made.
3: You yeah. say, you know I have no problem. Do you think the machine can tell if you're stressed or angry, like when you're going through the airport, or or does it, you know just ding or the alarms go off?
1: That's just maybe that's just your resting <laughs> face. <fist, laughs> yeah. yeah. Resting what face? <laughs> just resting face. Okay. Resting regular
3: face. Got it.
8: Got that's it. Enough.
1: All right. Thank you all very much. Okay, it was an interception that added. Insult to injury. But when the game was over, there was nothing that was going to stop 49ers linebacker Dre Greenlaw from going up to Tom Brady. We're going to tell you what happened next and what John Berman's reaction to it
0: is. <laughs> he cried. <laughs> All right, you've got to see this. At Francisco 49ers linebacker Dre Greenlaw intercepting a pass from Tampa Bay Buccaneers quarterback, Tom Brady. The 49ers beat the Buccaneers 35-7 to in Sunday's game. But
1: after the game, Greenlaw went up to Brady to ask him to sign the ball that he intercepted.
10: Back with you the ball. Listen. listen. Hey, man, I just want you to know, man. You the
0: greatest ever, bro. Uh, for, real. for real, listen. Man. This is an honor for this us, a man, to play against you. Real, wow. this Seriously. This
1: Yeah, back with us, our resident Tom Brady groupie, <laughs> John Berman. Um, John, does this make you only love Tom Brady more?
3: He didn't look terribly psyched there, I have to say. <laughs> when somebody was saying, I've been <laughs> watching I've been you, been that watching I was two. Two? It's like one of those underhanded compliments. Hey, this is the ball that I intercepted that you threw. Will you sign it? it, it, it the defensive player, it was super genuine what he was doing. Yeah. Um, and Brady was awfully nice to sort of to sort of play along, <laughs> but there was an aspect to it that I thought was sort of like rubbing salt. I the, the other here. guy
1: was like, "You're the man. You're yeah. the goat." Like he was. They were saying, they yeah. really did obviously love him, but I, I I heard that too. The since I was two, well. no, they, they exactly. didn't say sorry. We just beat you, sir.
0: But they, yeah. didn't, they didn't say that aspect. <laughs> that of was it. the
3: subtext, though. I mean, that was literally the ball he picked off from Tom Brady. There. What
0: are you gonna have Tom Brady sign when you meet him?
3: um yeah yeah my chest isn't that what you do <laughs> <laughs> i've been to rock concerts isn't that isn't that what's yeah. done yep yeah.
1: that's
0: exactly right there yeah. was not even a moment he skipped a beat no. he, he has he's bought this, out.
1: this wow i mean it's gonna be wow. right next to the tattoo that's already on i'm his just chest gonna have him in color this. in the tattoo
3: oh, that's enough. what i'm gonna have him you don't have to sign anything just color it in so obvious
0: oh wow i think i need to leave for <laughs> yeah. a little bit it's wonderful But guess what, everyone? There's a dangerous winter storm set to seep across the entire nation, and it could bring blizzards and tornadoes and flooding all at once. A live weather report next. A massive winter storm that's been slamming the West is now moving east. More than 10 million people across more than a dozen states are under winter weather alerts tonight.
1: And depending on where in the country you live, you could be facing blizzard conditions, flooding, or even possible tornadoes over the next few days. So let's get right to meteorologist Britley Ritz in the CNN Weather Center. Okay, what are you seeing?
13: Yeah, the system is massive, stretching from the northern plains back into the four corners all the way down into the deep south. And again, ranging from snowfall, ice, and even the threat of severe weather. Snowfall depth currently across the Sierra Mountain Range back into the central Rockies, ranging anywhere from a foot to feet of snowfall. Now, the heaviest snow fell across the Sierra Mountain Range over the last 24 hours, where we picked up almost six feet of snow above 5000 feet and all of that moisture that fell over the Sierra mountain range now pushes up through the central Rockies into the northern plains and upper Midwest today and tomorrow. Some of us already dealing with these slick conditions. You'll see the pink popping on radar. That's ice. Yes, a quarter of an inch to a half an inch of ice expected up to an inch in some of these areas that are under the ice storm warnings. So this will continue on. And then the thunderstorms, you'll see the lightning starting to fire up for parts of Nebraska down into the Texas panhandle already. This is going to be a continuance over the next 24 to 48 hours. Blizzard warnings in effect, that's 35 mile per hour winds over a three, three hour period of time where visibilities are going to be knocked down to a quarter of a mile, if not longer. We're talking about winds in Goodland at 50 to 55 miles per hour. Sustained with gusts even stronger than that. And of course, as that low pushes further north, you can expect that in Rapid City, North Dakota as well here in the next day or two. That area of low pressure, you'll see areas highlighted in red where we'll have our most vulnerable areas of severe weather. Again, stretching from the central plains back across the southeast. Moving into the lower Mississippi Valley where we'll have that threat of damaging winds, hail and even long-lived tornadoes. Once we move into Wednesday, that'll push down into the Florida Panthers. Handle.
0: Look at the size of that storm. Unbelievable. Thank you so much, Britley. I want to turn now to the special counsel ramping up the criminal investigation surrounding Donald Trump, now subpoenaing Georgia's Secretary of State. CNN political commentator Errol Lewis is here, along with Scott Jennings and John Dean, former Nixon White House counsel. Also, CNN political commentator Ashley Allison joins us as well. Look, I mean, John, let me begin with you for a second here because, look, In less than a month as special counsel, you've got Jack Smith issuing subpoenas for Brad Raffensperger and local election officials in battleground states, asked a judge to hold Trump in contempt for failing to comply with the subpoena. You've got multiple people before a grand jury as well. And by the way, we're learning, I think he's still in Europe, recovering from a bike accident. This is a lot of ground to cover in this short amount of time. What do you make of it?
10: Laura, I think he's right on top of it. He's been on top of it from day one. He filed a pleading in the 11th Circuit when the argument was about to be made, contesting statements they'd made in their the Trump people had made in their brief. And he has been uh, sending people to grand juries. He got top aides to counsel from the uh, Trump White House and Stephen Miller. So he is really pushing this and moving it quickly.
1: Um, Ashley, our panel last hour raised the question... What's taken so long that basically it's been, you know, two, two years uh, for some of these investigations that have been going on. And now, you know, now we're seeing Brad Raffensperger be called about January 6th and things like that. It's like uh, the special counsel is moving with a lot more alacrity than the Department of Justice was.
0: Well, you know, is that at for some me.
1: Point, no, sorry for no. Ashley. Got it.
0: At some point, I wanted it to be a more expeditious Process, But the reality is, is that
1: slow and steady wins the race. And what the race of victory means is making sure that people who try to overthrow our democracy face the necessary consequences. Um, I think the Department of Justice has done a lot of work laying the foundation when the special counsel was appointed. Um, They've now taken the baton and it may seem like it is moving faster, but a lot of work had been done already by DOJ. And so I'm willing to be patient as long as justice is served.
0: That's a good point, Ashley, the idea of thinking about the groundwork possibly being done. And the reason you can now sort of hit the ground running is because there's been a foundation, which remains to be seen. But, Scott, as you well know, I mean, we're really, frankly, days away from a new Congress being sworn in. Um, obviously, DOJ is a separate and intends to be a separate entity that, of course, Congress and branch of government But I wonder politically, what do you think ramifications of this will be? Do you think this is still a politically viable um, investigation where the electorate is behind it?
14: Well, look, the investigation has momentum. I mean, it's been going on, as you pointed out, for a couple of years. A lot of people have been interviewed. A lot of documents have been obtained and grand juries are impaneled. And uh, I mean, this thing has momentum. And so it strikes me, given the people that he is currently seeking to talk to, uh, that they are uh, you know, getting to the point where they're going to start making some decisions. So yeah, I mean, it's viable because you know, real things happened. January 6th happened. The phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State happened. A lot of things uh, were said and done that were really done right out in the open. We all saw it with our own two eyes. And so um, also I would just say political viability of an investigation, public opinion of an investigation, it's really kind of irrelevant. I think the the point of all this should be justice should be done no matter what public opinion is, that's what we should all want here is for uh, any crimes that were committed to be uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law and for everybody to have their day in court uh, within the system that we all agree to. So that, that's what I want as an American, and I hope the special counsel gets us there.
1: Errol, um, if you have something to add, feel free, but I also want to pivot at some point to what Stephen Miller is up
15: to. Oh, yeah. So, if- well, de- yeah, we definitely want to get that. I would just say, look, Even uh, simply receiving the subpoena in, you know, Wayne County, Michigan, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, Maricopa County and Arizona, it has a beneficial effect. As we all know, anybody who's had contact with the criminal justice system, you get a federal subpoena with your name on it. You're going to think a little bit more carefully uh, when the next election comes around about whether you want to engage in sort of wild speculation about stolen elections and start issuing memos about seizing machines and so forth. So the, 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 the investigation is longer than a lot of us would like, but it's already had, I think, a beneficial effect. That's
1: a great point. OK, let's pivot to Stephen Miller. So everybody remembers he was the architect of the child separation policy at the border, among other hits. Um, and so he has started this anti-white bigotry group, and he is suing... Um, when things crop up in the government that he thinks are, um, you know, d- that discriminate against white people, for instance, billions of dollars in pandemic um, aid that was going to go to black farmers, billions of dollars that was going to go to minority and female owned restaurants. And he's winning. He's winning in court. With this,
15: this this is how it works. Um, social movements give rise to counter movements. Right. So you have Black Lives Matter movement. And then you have sort of a counter movement where you have the thin blue line flag start popping up all over the place. Um, You had the George Floyd protests in 2020. Well, Stephen Miller and company, you know, in reaction to all of the different uh, really interesting projects that happen all over the country where people are trying to sort of come to terms with past injustices. Well, it gives rise to a counter movement where Stephen Miller has apparently gotten tens of millions of dollars collected to try and go into court and try and make a case that, no, we should not. Uh, re- rectify these past injustices. It is what happens. Um, I don't think he ultimately will be successful.
1: But he already has been in some court cases. Obviously,
15: well, mean, he can win this case or that case. But like, if you step back and look at the, the broad picture, you know the reality is um, white men are not being discriminated against. Um, most Americans under eighteen years old are kids of color. The country is changing, as the president's constantly saying. This new younger generation. They're the smartest, the most tolerant, the best educated, the most tech savvy generation we've ever had. I would bet on the kids and not the dinosaurs, like Stephen Miller.
0: Well, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I think you make a great point: the idea of what how you judge the success of these different matters. But the talking points will be used nonetheless to show there's some discussion about why it's problematic to correct past wrongs. Let me ask you though, John, on this on um, a different point, more more broadly. And I I just wonder from your perspective going forward, as we're embarking on a time when we've got a new Congress who's still looking back, one woman in particular, Marjorie Taylor Green, the congresswoman from Georgia, talking about what she would have done differently with a January 6th insurrection and how it would have been successful. I mean, take us back to your reaction to the idea that this is a punchline to this day.
10: It's kind of a sorry commentary, actually, that she would say we would have done it better if we'd have done it more aggressively, and we would have done it with arms. Uh, she seems to forget there were lots of weapons there. But I, you know, I I think these are attempts to gather attention. There's an attention economy out there. They talk about and people on the right, like Marjorie Taylor, uh, Green, like to draw attention to themselves and do it with outrageous statements one after another. It's sort of the standard mantra of the right now to see what m- can be more outrageous than the last person said.
1: Mm. Okay. At his expense. Um, thank you all very much for those insights. Next, what happened to a 21-year-old American studying abroad in France? His family has not heard from him in a couple of weeks. His fellow students have reported him missing now. We have the latest on this mystery. A New York college student studying abroad in France is missing. The parents of Kenny Deland Jr. says they have not heard from their son in more than two weeks, and he had been in touch with them every day.
0: Now they're desperate, understandably, for any information on where he might be. A French prosecutor has now opened an investigation, but so far it looks like the trail has unfortunately gone cold. More from CNN's Jason Carroll.
11: This may be the last known image of Kenny Deland Jr. It shows him just as he entered a sporting goods store in the south of France, wearing a red jacket and gray knit cap. That was December 3rd.
1: I just hope that he reaches out to
11: us. Delan, a 22-year-old senior at St. John Fisher University in Rochester, New York, is part of a study abroad program in France at the University of Grenoble Alps. Delan's family says they had been communicating frequently, but then the messages stopped.
14: We were just exchanging how he was doing and um, you know, he's been traveling,
8: he's been having a great time. We just shake our heads. We we don't understand why he's not reaching out
11: to us. His family launched a website seeking answers and detailing his last known whereabouts. November 27th, his parents last heard from him on WhatsApp. That's when they say their son boarded a train headed for Valence, France. Two days later, November 29th, the public prosecutor's office in Grenoble, the city where Delanne was studying French, opened an investigation after his fellow students reported him missing. November 30th, the last known activity from his phone. Then, December 3rd, Delan made an $8.40 purchase at that sporting goods store located just about 80 miles from Grenoble. His mother saying nothing seemed wrong during their conversations.
0: You know, it was like any normal conversation that we've had. He's telling me um, about the time that he's having in Europe and Um, He was looking forward to coming home for Christmas and starting to um, put the plans in place for that.
11: The French prosecutor's office telling CNN, Deland told several people he was underprepared for overseas study and was having difficulty making friends. St. John Fisher University says it's working closely with the American Institute of Foreign Study on the investigation. AIFS saying in a statement, we are working with local law enforcement who have begun a search. We are hoping for his swift and safe return. Back in his hometown, a prayer service held at the Clifton Springs United Methodist Church.
6: I'd like to see you come home, and uh,
7: preferably before Christmas, for your family's sake, and for yours too. Uh, Just be safe.
11: His community and family praying that he will soon be found safe and sound.
16: We're, We're waiting. We're worried. We don't know what,
14: you know, where he is.
1: Jason Carroll is here with us now, along with Errol Lewis and John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. John, um, it seems like, well, you tell me, does this seem like foul play to you, or does this seem like he left of his own accord? And the reason I say that is because of what Jason just reported on, that the young man reportedly told several people that he was underprepared for this study abroad and was having difficulty making friends.
8: So part of the issue here is he's 22. You know, if he wants to walk away, he can walk away. It's not like a missing child. And I think that's part of why his parents are having trouble getting information. It is. Because A, he's an adult, and B, the French have extraordinarily complex laws uh, about privacy and sharing anything that's under investigation, especially with another country, especially about an adult. So tie it all up in that, but get back to your question. It looks like he walked off the set from the study program, because we see him 87 miles away buying something for $8.40 in a sporting goods store. The problem is When he goes off the grid totally no communications you know the cell phone pings the credit card stops moving you have to wonder even if he walked away of his own volition did something happen to him and that's the real question right now is he okay and where is he and why is he off the grid
0: jason on that point i mean just thinking i mean the parents obviously worried this is their son they want to know where he is There's the concerns that you raise allison Has there been the frustrations about the lack of information? What are they hearing, if anything? And a
11: couple things. I mean, they're worried sick, as any parent would be worried if their child had gone missing like this. And remember, they say it's out of character for him because they say he had been communicating every single day, checking in, saying, I'm doing this. I'm doing that, whatever. But again, as John brings up, because of these French privacy laws, it's causing a great deal of frustration on, you know, the behalf of his mother and father. You know, they just want to know from French authorities, who are you talking to? You know, what are they saying to you? And again, he's an adult. He's 22 years old. And so French privacy laws are there to protect you, even sometimes from your own family in terms of giving out information. But again... Because the family is working with the State Department, right, because now this story has gotten so much international attention behind the scenes, one would theorize that they are getting some information. But, of course, these are two parents who are worried sick about their child. So whatever information they're getting, it's not enough.
1: Yeah, it's a nightmare when this happens in this country, obviously, they all for parents. But the idea of it happening in a different country where there's all these different laws is just really
15: upsetting one would hope that with or without the cooperation of the french police that uh, they would uh, put the message out including this message tonight let as many people as possible see it tell them that you know call in your tips call in any information a sighting and so forth Um, i hope that they're doing that in concentric circles around this store in marseille to just ask everybody street vendors street musicians anybody have you seen this kid uh try and get the message to him I, You know, we all hope, I think, that he's maybe out having some kind of an adventure, or, or meeting new friends, mm-hmm. um, or traveling around, maybe without using credit cards, forgetting to call home. Uh, and if it comes to his attention that people are looking for him, perhaps he'll call in.
0: Jason, so. at what point did this escalate? I mean, to the state departments involved in some respects? Well,
11: in terms of escalation, I mean, it, it happened once uh, his friends from school called and said, hey, he, he, he's not showing up. And I think that's one of the reasons why some of his parents were pushing back on some of those reports that came out that basically said, you know, from French authorities saying, oh, hey, look, he wasn't making friends. You know, they did acknowledge that learning French was a lot more difficult, you know, in terms of what he thought it would be. Mm-hmm. But um, it started to escalate after his friends noticed that he did not show up for class. And so then, of course, they local alerted local authorities. Then the ball started. To
0: and there's a host family?
11: There is a host family. And the host family, look, you know, from all accounts, I mean, the host family speaks very little English. Um, but that's the way it works when you go in, in, with, with one of these exchange programs. But the, he got along with them. The host family, you know, took him to Switzerland, took him on a visit. And so that's why there's so many questions here and why there's so much frustration on the part of the family wanting to get more information from French authorities.
1: Let's hope that this helps, as you say, all media uh, awareness helps. Thanks so much, guys.
0: Well, it's a riddle scientists have been trying to crack for decades. How to harness nuclear fusion. Now they've made a huge breakthrough, and it could have a major impact on clean energy. And we're going to explain how it all works. In detail. Just In Allison, now. Just now. Yes, just Allison. Yeah.
1: U.S. scientists making a huge breakthrough. A source tells CNN that for the first time ever, researchers have been able to create energy from a fusion reaction. Now, Laura, I could explain all of this in great detail, <laughs> of either. course. But basically, it's a giant step towards a clean energy future without dependence on fossil fuels.
0: Enough said. It's I mean, That's all you need that's to know. That's you know, everyone, the Department of Energy is expected to officially announce the breakthrough in just a few hours. But here to help explain it to us all, and Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir and science educator Bill Nye, host of The End Is Nye. Let me begin with you, uh, Mr. Nye, on this point because although Allison and I clearly know everything about if you have any nuclear questions, fusion, Bill. feel free to ask us any questions you might have. Mm-hmm. Um, but could you just explain for those of us who don't know how this is such a miraculous occurrence?
7: So uh, I'll ask you a question. Do you know that the sun... The sun is a continuous fusion reaction. Naturally, has a continuum.
1: Definitely. Do you really or
7: not? This is so a nuclear weapon can be like you. We had it terminate World War II. We're splitting very large atoms apart. Uh, gave off a tremendous amount of energy, but there's another amazing thing that happens in nature where you smash tiny, tiny parts of atoms together—protons—and they fuse and convert a tiny amount of their mass into energy, into heat, heat and light. And uh, that was the mythic hydrogen bomb. But for all this time, for 80 years, people have tried to tried to get this idea where you could do it in a controlled fashion using a tiny amount of material. And the material would be uh, hydrogen that has an extra neutron. Which has this marvelous word, deuterium. And then, if it has two extra neutrons, that's tritium. And so, using lasers, they zap this container, this whole rum, uh, this gold thing with the deuterium in it. And the lasers create X rays, and the X rays create constructively interfering shock waves. That get the thing to fuse mm-hmm. without a giant magnetic bottle and without the gravity of a star.
10: Mm-hmm. And
7: so this is the first time, by all accounts, they've gotten more heat out than they put in. And this is amazing. And there's as far as I know in the reporting the last few days, no one's mentioned that Enrique Fermi and his colleagues in University of Chicago. Did the first chain reaction which led to all the nuclear power plants we have now yeah on december 2nd 1942 okay so it's quite, it's quite a little uh, chin stroke <laughs> that it's very close to 80 years later to the day that this breakthrough occurred and so you guys if this would work yeah if this is a harbinger if this is really the beginning of something huge it would change the world.
1: Thank you for explaining that, Alice. Well, no, no. Thank I mean, mean so I was going to say all of that, but um, Bill, uh, Bill Weir, tell us what we need to know. <laughs> Bill in just did. To that. In it, addition, anyone
12: that. You over with dates at the band? Yeah. No, um, it's a star in a box. This is the whole idea. This yeah. is why. Nuclear physicists have been salivating on this idea forever. It's taking a star and, and putting it in a box on Earth and tapping that energy that goes forever. It's yeah. what Iron Man has in his chest, okay? It's <laughs> now this, we understand. It's this endless uh, clean energy machine, and the appeal of it is is you don't have any nuclear waste. There's no fallouts. There's no accidents. We don't have to drill or, or mine for fuel anymore because the fuel is seawater. We have thirty million years of seawater, theoretically, to feed these machines. But the the what Bill was describing there these two hundred lasers aimed at what is essentially a peppercorn mm. <laughs> of hydrogen, a long way from there to where you can plug in your house to this stuff. This is for our grandkids, probably, uh, as a as a meaningful technology. Bill, maybe you're more optimistic than I am about how fast this takes. In the meantime, there's all this incredible. Uh, breakthroughs that are happening with wind and solar. And, you know, more will go online in the next five years. It went online in the last 20. So it'll be interesting to see how this news is received by those who say we should be putting our billions of dollars into the the technology we know works today and getting off oil and gas ASAP and then maybe, you know, saving life as we know it before we go for these amazing moonshots. But at the same time, the promise of this you know, private money is going to chase public after this. And so this could be a, a brave new world.
0: Bill, is there, do you think that it could be in our grandchildren's lifetime? Could it be continually oh, sooner?
7: Absolutely. I mean, so I just, I just think about how quickly people went from discovering chain reactions, the sizzler and crossing the street in 1928, and he had this idea. And then uh, just two decades later, we had nuclear power plants. Well, this could be the beginning of something amazing. So everybody, you know this expression H2O, water. There's no shortage of hydrogen, man. If we can find a way to make this happen continuously, what you do is capture the heat and almost certainly capture the heat, boil water and make steam and run a turbine, just as we do now in a coal-fired plant or a natural gas fired plant or a nuclear plant because we're using fission. So it's really an exciting thing and it shows you the value of just investing like you just just invest in basic research. There what? is no right answer and I got to say Bill to me it's it, it's don't make me pick. We don't want to have to pick. <laughs> it's it's true. Me, no, but really. And we because the climate situation is so serious, we want to do as I like to say, everything all at once. We want to develop wind and solar. We want to develop uh, this fusion technology if it's possible. We want to avoid, you may know NIMBY, not in my backyard, we want to avoid banana. Build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. We can't do that either. (laughs) We have to to build power lines. It's going to have to go through somebody's right-of-way We've got to find ways to distribute electricity and uh, include everybody in a future so that we have a higher quality of life for more people on Earth and we can avoid having catastrophic yeah. climate consequences. This is one more piece in the puzzle. Invest, invest, invest. And plus, people. I was born in the U.S. I don't know any better. OK, so I want the U.S. to lead in this technology. I don't want to be catching up with um uh, researchers in other parts of the world who sure. are fine people. Yeah, yes. And they're colleagues, uh, but I
1: want, as a as a US proud citizen, American,
7: teacher, yeah. I want
1: to You make a, a great point. Man. You make a great point, Bill. <laughs> and, I mean, this is such a great story. You know, so often, Bill, we have you on, and it's really discouraging climate mm-hmm. news, and it's catastrophic, in fact. And this is such a hopeful story. Um, Exciting story. So thank you both for oh, explaining yes. it so well to
7: us. Really great to have you. Uh, let us fellow taxpayers and voters, let's invest. Change right. the world. Thank you.
12: Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to be a lot more fun. And thanks to the scientists at, at, at Livermore Labs we are today. Yes,
1: I know. It's yeah. great.
12: Go science. It's,
1: yes, it's
12: fantastic. It's so great to be able to report a great story.
0: Thanks so much for From explaining it to us. a good kind of investment to... Yeah.
1: Right. So you're right. Here's There is a huge development in the story... of. They that collapsed cryptocurrency exchange remember how Mm -hmm. millions of people lost money the founder of that exchange has just been arrested in the bahamas and that's the day before he was supposed to testify before congress we're going to bring you up to speed on what's happened next His company was worth 32 billion dollars at its peak, but the cryptocurrency exchange FTX filed for bankruptcy last month, potentially leaving crypto customers holding the bag.
0: And now, Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested in the Bahamas after the United States filed criminal charges against him. in just one day before he was supposed to testify before the House Financial Services Committee, Ellie Honig is back with us. Ellie, why is it significant?
2: So the question before we heard this news was: Was this the result of fraud? or incompetence? Well, now we have the answer. The U.S. Department of Justice the Southern Southern District of New York, my former office, says it's fraud. And that tells us they believe that he took intentional acts, intentional misstatements, so now he's looking at criminal charges. The SDNY, my former office, is famous for these Wall Street uh, corporate prosecutions from the junk bonds, cases of the 80s, through Bernie Madoff more recently. So this may be another one in that line. What's going to happen next? We, the United States, are going to try to extradite him. We do have a treaty... with with the Bahamas, meaning they can send him over here. And then the question is, do we let him out on bail or do the prosecutors try to lock him up? So those are the things to look for as we move through the next stages of this prosecution.
1: And since he left the U.S., they might not want to let him out on bail. And he's got money,
2: so they may be a little suspicious.
1: Okay, Ellie, thank you very much for explaining all of that. Okay, the sports world, remembering journalist Grant Wall, who died after collapsing at a World Cup match. Ahead, we're going to speak with another journalist who was sitting right next to him during those final moments. The sudden death of journalist Grant Wall on Friday, still shaking up the sports world. Wall was just 49 years old and in the middle of covering the World Cup in Qatar. Sports Illustrated, where Wall worked for nearly 25 years, paying tribute to him, saying, no writer in the history of Sports Illustrated has been more passionate about the sport he loved and the stories he wanted to tell.
0: Some journalists who were in the press box also speaking out about their final moments with Grant Wall, including Rafael Correz. He was sitting right next to Wall during the match between Argentina and the Netherlands. He joins us now along with one of Wall's friends and former colleagues, Sports Illustrated executive editor and senior writer John Wertheim. Thank you for both both of you for being here this evening. It's very difficult.
1: Yeah, and Rafael, I just want to start with you because there's still so many questions. It's so mysterious. What happened to Grant? And obviously so disturbing for everyone. You were seated right next to him when he suffered some kind of medical emergency. Could you tell that he was in distress? What was happening?
17: Well, uh, he was uh, at the media tribune uh, in our row. He was the last in the row. Behind him, there was like uh, this metallic structure. So he was the last one. I was sitting to his left next to him. The space is very tight. So we were like chair against chair. And I mean, during this happened at the very end of the game, actually, four minutes and before the, the end of the second half of the extra time. We had been sitting there for more than two hours. Uh, Grant didn't, I don't recall him moving at all during those more than two hours. Uh, He was talking with us, not much, but normally we were all focused on on work, but we were commenting some some plays, you know, the game. And what I can say is that he was coughing, and we knew that uh, he had bronchitis, but obviously you, you would never expect what happened at the end of the game.
0: And on that point, I mean, before he had some sort of a medical emergency, had he explained to you how he was feeling? And I'm also curious as to what happened that you were first alerted to there being an issue.
17: Well, uh, at that time of the game, we, we were all kind of in our computers. And then the person on my left, uh, which knew Grant uh, from a long time, and, and he, he, I started I like listening, Grant, Grant, what's happening? And then I turned to my right, and I see Grant in distress. Uh, I don't want to be specific. I don't think we, we need to, but definitely he was like in a critical situation. I tried to 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 talk to him. I, I grabbed his his face, kind of trying to communicate with him. He was not responding. We start yelling for a medic. Obviously, the whole uh, the whole media uh, area got up because we were yelling and. I don't remember how many seconds went through until the first uh, paramedic, it was a female, a woman, uh, arrived uh, to where we were. I was was holding Grant, uh, meanwhile, she was trying to talk to her. Mm. And uh, for me, I mean, it it was a, a very long time, maybe it was not that long, but I wanted her to do something because I had tried first actually to make him react and it was not working and i knew that what she was doing I and mean, she was trying to talk to him but that was not obviously working so she took his pulse and and at that moment uh, she said okay we have to put him on the floor and because the the chairs were movable were regular chairs not like stadium seats we took away the the chairs and we, we we put him on the floor and, and then more paramedics uh, arrived and they started uh, doing CPR on him. Mm.
1: John, it's so shocking, obviously, on so many levels. He was 49 years old. Um, he seemed to be in good health other than, you know, obviously reporting the he had a cold or bronchitis. It's just obviously sent a shockwave through um, everyone. And so particularly, John, you, because you worked with him for so long and you've written beautifully about how what an inspirational writer he was and so just share with us i mean what was so inspiring about grant
16: some of it was just the quality of work that he produced whether it was long-form journalism whether it was reporting news breaking but also podcasts and video this is someone uh, who just had knew soccer as well as anyone but it wasn't so much about the games as the people But apart from the work product, it was also the way he went about the job. And he was compassionate, but he was principled. And he was absolutely thorough and dignified. And he was curious. He traveled everywhere. He covered the men, but also the women. He loved how international soccer was. Um, It really was a model, both in terms of the work he did, but also his, his approach to the job as well.
0: And Jonathan, we've heard from so many icons in sports thinking about how they impacted and how he impacted their lives. We remember thinking about even LeBron James, um, obviously a titan in the field of basketball, remembering a cover story when he was in high school in Akron, Ohio, written by your colleague. And just thinking about those moments of being able to identify the talent to have stuck with him after all these years and thinking about it. I'm really sorry that you are here today talking about him in this way, but tell me, what would you like the world to know about the legacy that you hope his work leaves?
16: I think just that you can have this kind of success and also this kind of humanity and passion. And it was, you know, it it was great that LeBron James and Billie Jean King and so many people from the soccer world weighed in, but so did, and I think almost, you know, just as poignantly, if not more so, so did interns and people that were lower than him on on the masthead on the org chart that he helped out along the way. He took being a mentor very seriously. And this was someone who had this incredible amount of success and the incredible amount of access. And he didn't want to hoard that. He wanted to share that. And so it, it was it was lovely that LeBron James remembered him from 20 years ago. I think it's remarkable. It wasn't even in the sport that Grant is best known for. Mm-hmm. Um, and LeBron remembered him two decades later, but, but again, just as touching to me were the accounts from people who remembered small acts of kindness that stayed with them for, for decades.
1: And John, I mean, as you point out the sport Mm -hmm. that he's so well known for is soccer, which is not every American's favorite sport, as you know, I mean, we're much more of a football country. What was it about soccer that so captivated Grant?
16: Yeah, it's a great question. It's not as though he was a, a college player. It's not as though he had this sort of, Pedigree in the sport. Um, he was captivated in the sport when he went to by the sport when he went to South America when he was in college, and I think he just saw the magic in it, and he just never got rid of of, of the passion. It only grew the more he immersed himself, the more contacts, the more trips he went on. I remember when he covered the World Cup in 1998 it was the first time he'd ever been to europe and he just was absolutely glowing when he got back and said now he needs to convince all the editors to let him cover the women's world cup the following year the same way um soccer just fed something in him i think he understood that this was a sport poised to grow i think he got the magic and the subtlety but i think he also really loved the culture, the fact that it was this, this sort of this laboratory, that this microscope, um, and he conveyed that so well in in the work he did.
0: Well, certainly, Raphael, you know this quite well as well. the The magic of the sport, being able to cover it, and I'm sure it's a great comfort to his family to know that he was not alone and somebody was caring for him when he needed it most. Thank you I so have much.
17: To say that. I have to say that we Latinos uh, live for soccer, you know that, it's, mm. it's our main sport by far. And all the reporters, the journalists that we cover soccer in the U.S. and in Spanish, in the Spanish language, we knew Grant Wall and we respected him a lot. And we always thought that he was the best by far uh, English writing or reporter, soccer reporter in the U.S.
1: Mm, thanks for adding that. Oh, That's very nice. Raphael, John, thank you both. Really appreciate it.
0: And thank yeah. you all thank for you. watching.
1: Our coverage continues.